Will you turn with me to Acts and chapter 2? Acts and chapter 2. I want to read some verses from the beginning of that chapter and also from the end. First of all, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then, after the message that Peter brings to the crowds that had gathered there, we then come to verse 41. And it says this, Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as everyone had need. So continuing daily, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. As you know, we are looking at the uh, subject of the anointing. And up until now, we have talked about the anointing that comes upon us as individuals. But today I want us to look at a particular time in the church when the Holy Spirit didn't just fall on one person, but it fell upon the whole congregation. And the whole congregation, everybody, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we, hear, as we read here, they spoke with other tongues. Now, a collective anointing is not something that's unique just for this chapter. If you go to 2 Chronicles on chapter 5 and verses 13 and 14, it says, And when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the ministers could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Such was the power of God that even the priests couldn't do their jobs. And uh, it seems as if something came upon that congregation, the glory of God came upon them. And then again in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now there... The, 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 um, if you like, the miraculous thing was the building was shaken. Now, I don't know quite what would happen if God shut this building. It's pretty strong. But you can imagine how that must have felt to those people. Many years ago, when the first Pentecostal missionaries came back from Africa, 
they went to a place in London called the Kingsway Hall. And they began to tell the people of some of the incredible miracles and what God had been doing while they were out there. And as they were sharing the story, suddenly the presence and the power of God came into the place in such a powerful way that it seemed as if, and, and, and people said this, hundreds said it, it seemed as if in the dome of the building they could hear the wings of angels fluttering as, as the presence and the power of God came into the place. It was a corporate, it was a collective anointing of the Holy Spirit. I think I've mentioned this before, but my wife and I were in a meeting in Butlins with about 2,000 people in one of the theatres there when Reinhard Bonnke asked his uh, African evangelist to pray. I was on the platform and it just so happened that Maxine was near the back. And as he began to pray, suddenly you just felt the presence and the power of God come into the place. And it was as if somebody had taken a hand and they'd kind of taken a hand from the front of the congregation and swept through the congregation. And those that were standing at the front fell backwards. Those that were sitting on the seats fell backwards. And my wife said, it was at the back of the hall, she said, to me, it felt like there was a wave of like liquid glory and of God's presence coming over the congregation. And she said, I felt it coming towards me as I was standing. And the moment it hit me, she said, I was gone. She said, I was just in heaven. She said, it was absolutely fantastic. And, and those are moments... And those are times that I believe God wants to bring to his people. There are moments when, when the presence and the power of God is so great that, that amazing things begin to happen. But have you noticed what was happening when that anointing came? It says in Acts 2 verse 1, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then it says also in verse 13 of that passage that I read from the Old Testament, it said, it came to pass when the trumpeters were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking God. It was then the presence of God came. In other words, it seems that God comes in these special ways when he finds a group of people that are totally united and are open, are ready for God to do it. You know, there's something good about unity. Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And going back to what Gareth said about the oil last week, it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down to the edge of his garments. That oil that was poured out upon him when he was anointed. Now, it's something we have to learn. That if we want to know God's blessing, we have to be united people. Now, understand something. You don't make the unity. The Holy Spirit makes the unity. But as Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, we are to endeavour, we are to work at keeping the unity of the Spirit. In other words, if there's one thing as a church we have got to guard more than anything else, 
It's unity. Now, the devil knows it. And he hates it when he sees a church that's united. And he would do anything and everything he can to spoil that unity. He will send in people that gossip. He will send in people who moan and complain and who are negative. Somebody said this, Dale Carnegie, a man of God, said this, any fool can criticise, condemn and complain. Then he added, and most fools do. And you know, it's easy to be negative. It's very easy to complain. It's so important we keep the unity. The story is told of a 12-year-old boy who had not spoken since he was born. But after being served oatmeal for breakfast for five or six days, he suddenly in the middle of his breakfast shouted, Yuck! I hate this stuff! His mother jumped up, she hugged him and she said, We thought you could not talk! Why haven't you spoken to us before? And the boy looked at her and said, well, because until now, everything's been okay. And you know, some people are like that. You never hear a dicky bird from them when everything's going right. You never hear any encouragement. You never hear any blessing. But directly something goes wrong. Wow. Watch out. Some people only talk when they're upset. And that's, that doesn't help unity. What helps unity is when we're positive. Now, don't get me wrong. The early church wasn't perfect. They had their problems. In Galatians 2, they had division of race. and Paul had to tell Peter off for his attitude to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1, they had divisions of personality where one group followed this person. One group said, this one of the leaders is best. The other one said, this one is best. And they all became like kind of little groupies in the church. And Paul has to write to them. And he has to really go for them. And then there was division of wealth. Do you know, in the church, they used to have these kind of meals. And Paul really rebukes them because the rich people were putting their food on one table and sitting around their table. And the poor people were sitting around putting the food on their table and sitting around their table. So the poor ate the poor food and the wealthy ate the, you know, all, all the rich stuff. And Paul said, what are you playing at? Why don't you share it? What kind of a church are you? And, and you will find that the church leaders, they tackled unity, disunity quite a bit. My old pastor, Billy Richards, at the church I was brought up in, I think we got a sermon on unity every three months. And um, it was a real right hot, I mean, it was a red hot sermon. And if anybody of us had been calling names or doing a bit of negative stuff in the church, we felt very guilty. And of course, the New Testament tells us to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to, to serve one another. You know, the church is Christ's body. This here, every one of us here this morning, we are Christ's body. Now, if you hurt one person, you hurt Christ's body. Think about it. How many of us want to hurt Jesus, and yet we so easily hurt his body, which is the church? And it's so important that we keep unity. Very interesting. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 12 to 22, Paul talks about disunity. And he actually basically says, shame on you for your divisions. And then he gives instructions on taking the bread and the wine. And he says, listen, examine yourselves. Some of you are taking the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner. That's why some of you are sick. And that's why some of you are dying out too early. And that examine is actually linked with the fact of disunity. In other words, you are coming to the table having slagged off somebody in the church. He said, watch out. You're not examining your hearts. You're not dealing with the situation. You're doing it unworthily because that blood represents a new covenant. Jesus died upon the cross. He shed his blood. When you invited Jesus into your heart and into your life, it was as if you signed a covenant with him to follow him, to live for him, to worship him, and also in his body to be positive and to have a positive effect. And when you break that covenant, you take that wine unworthily. And it's so important that every time we take communion, we remember that. We do it as we've respected his body. Thus we promise to work at unity. You know, your relationship with others has a lot of bearing on your relationship with God. Jesus said, if you bring me a gift, in other words, if you come to give me something like your worship, and actually as you come, you've got something against somebody, stop, hold on, I don't want your worship. You go and sort it out with that person, and then you come and worship. That's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? And, and so the more we look at this, the more we see that if we want a corporate anointing, if we want the power of God to come upon us as a church, we have to work at unity. We can't make the power come. We can't make that happen. But what we can do is we can get the right atmosphere. We can prepare things in a way. But notice also that in the beginning of the chapter, we start with unity. And at the end of the chapter, we've got community. If there's one thing, it seems to me, outside the church people are looking for, is a place where they can feel at home is a place where they can feel loved. A place where they, they just feel it's family. Now, the one thing I've always sought to do in the churches that I've led over the years is, is, is to seek to try and create a family atmosphere. I want people, when they come into the, into the church, to feel, hey, this is a family. This is a family that welcomes me. This is a group of people that love me. This is a group of people that care about me. And... and it creates community. And you know, it's good to be part of a church like that. I've had the privilege of looking back over my life and I think of my grandparents. My grandparents lived in the same street as the church. And they called my grandparents' house the church annex. Because on a Sunday night, I don't know how many, all I remember is as a child, very young, going round their home on a Sunday after church. And that place was absolutely packed out with people drinking coffee, laughing, talking, and friendship. My mum and dad took that to the church where we moved. And I remember as a child, 
um, coming up in our, in our home at 10 Church Road in Hayes in Middlesex. We always seem to have people there. And during the war, when our church was very near the ferry aviation factory that was being bombed, often the prayer meetings were held in our house, and I would creep out of the bedroom when everybody was not watching, and I'd sit on the top of the stairs, and I'd, I'd listen to them praying. And of course, later on, when my, we grew up as teenagers, my mum was very good, and would let us invite our friends around home. And I remember often on a Sunday night, we'd have 30, 40 young people packed into my mum's house. And you know, I found it interesting that wherever you visit churches that have seen revival and are going through an incredible move of the Holy Spirit, this sense of community is there in the church. And, 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 and the place is alive with it. And as you look at those last verses in the book of Acts, you see there the kind of community it was. Now, I, I want to suggest to you and ask you the question this morning, have we got the kind of community that they had at the end of this chapter? Is our church like the Acts 2 church? Now, I do have to say that I think probably to get there, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit because it seems to me that this is not something that you can produce naturally. God has to produce it. It's something that God does to a group of people when the power of God is there. But what was it about this community? I want to notice a few things very quickly this morning. First of all, it says they were a committed community. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Do you know, I don't get the impression as I read these verses that this was a group of people that were kind of take-it-or-leave-it kind of people. It wasn't something that they um, kind of um, they added on to their lives. It, seemed to me, it seems to me, as I read this, that I find that here is a church that these people were totally committed to. That their, li- their lives, you know, that the church life was the centre of what they did. That word steadfastly means they persevered, they stuck to, not leaving or forsaken. They were serious about church, are we? To what degree is our church life important to us? Is it something we just tag on on a Sunday morning and think we've done our bit? Friends, that is not what church is all about. Church is a seven-day week thing. It's a community thing. And I noticed they were committed to the leaders. who said to the apostles' doctrine. I could, I'm not going to say anything about that, but, you know, other than to say this, we should be faithful to the leaders. God has placed those leaders there. We must be loyal to them. We must stand by them. We must pray for them. They were committed to the doctrine, to the teaching. Can I kind of be an old man here and get away with something? But, you know, I do get disturbed. Not here, of course. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, other places. Um, when I see people get excited about worship, and they get excited praising God and And then the minute the preaching starts, they start talking. They become vacant. Do you know, friends, if we are going to grow, we need the word of God. It's so, so important that we absorb everything we can get. And these people, they were committed to it. They were committed to the breaking of bread. Now, I know there's some discussion as to whether this was meals or whether it was the communion um, when we come around the Lord's table. 
And it does seem to me probably in this context it was the communion because remember there were 3,000 people added to the church. So there was over 3,000 people. It would have been difficult to kind of sit down regularly for meals. They seemed to be doing that in the smaller groups. And it does seem they regularly, as much as they could, took bread and wine and, of course, in prayer also. It was also a compelling community. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. There was something compelling about the early church. You either loved them or you hated them. You couldn't be neutral. And I like that kind of church. Do you know, friends, there is a stigma about being a Christian. Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. And if we lived this life as we should live it, we will not be the most popular people in some quarters. We will in other quarters, but we won't in some. Why is it? Because our lives say something about God. And they bring with them a sense of respect and awe. God intended us as God's people not to be the tail but the head. We are supposed to impact people's lives. We are supposed to impact the offices and the factories and the places where we work. There should be something compelling about us. It was compelling respect. Then fear came upon every soul. Now, it doesn't mean some of them stopped persecuting the church, but they still were a bit afraid of them. In fact, sometimes it was their fear that drove them some of the things they did. It was a compelling respect. There were compelling miracles. Things were happening, friends, that you couldn't argue with. Even even when they were taken before the high priest, they had difficulty explaining away what God was doing. They had to admit that this was a miracle, even though they were telling them to stop doing it, because what God was doing. And of course, they were compelling Christians through the apostles. I heard this once, if you were taken to court and tried for being a Christian, would you be found guilty? Interesting point. My father went to work in a factory a few years before he died of cancer, and he was in great pain. And uh, there was a guy in that factory that gave my father a horrible time. He was nasty. And I remember hearing my dad talk to my mum sometimes about the day he'd had and how this guy had tried to upset him and laughed at him and jeered at him and everything. Well, eventually my father died. And about 18 months after he died, my brother, David, went to work at that same factory. That man found out that he was the son of the man he gave a hard time to. And one day he went to my brother and he said this, I used to give your dad a hard time because he was a Christian. But before he died, I came to respect him. He never lost his temper. He was also kind. In fact, I believe he was someone who you could call a real Christian. Now, my father never knew that. But underneath all what was going on, there was a great respect. And I believe we should command respect. And when we are filled with the Spirit and doing the job correctly, we will be a compelling people. They were a close community. It says, now they all who believed were together and had all things in common. I mean, it was so close. They were close in their faith in Jesus. They were close in their friendships, were together. And they were so close, they even had all things common, and they were close with their possessions. And you know, that's how church should be. 
Now, I know as a church grows, and, and you know, I, I go round to some of you and I say hello, and I think I've said it to some people more than once, is this your first time? And, and then I suddenly realise I've said it before. And, 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 and it's not always easy to get close to everybody in a large congregation. But you do it in the small groups. That's why it's so important you are in a small group. And in that closeness, it kind of infiltrates the church. And you have a sense of closeness. Even though maybe you don't know everybody, there's a spirit of closeness that goes through a church and people come together. And it's so important we have that. It's, somebody talks about a famous bridge in Prague 400 years ago when Charles IV decided to build this bridge and instructed the masons to carve the bricks beautifully and smoothly. They put it up and it kept collapsing, 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 collapsing. Finally, in desperation, he instructed them to gather rough stones, gravel and small pieces. And then he took the whites of thousands of eggs and they put these kind of odd pieces of of stone together with all the little bits, the large bits, everything, with the whites of the eggs. And you know, that bridge is still standing today. It wasn't the fact they were all the same. In fact, they were all different. But they were glued together by the whites of the eggs. And friends, being a member of a church doesn't mean to say we're all the same. Thank God. I love it when we're all different, don't you? I like it when you've got people, you know, you've got some people that are quiet, some people that are boisterous, and, and some people that do it this way, some people do it that way, and, you know, but that's what church is all about. We're a bunch of different people. But we're glued by the work of God in our lives, by the Holy Spirit. And it's that that brings the closeness. Don't try and model everybody like yourself. Don't try and kind of make everybody like you. Let everybody be different. Let everybody do things differently. But let the glue of the Holy Spirit keep that closeness. It was a costly community. They sold their possessions and goods. You know, there was a small town barber who was doing well until a saloon opened across the street. And they blitzed the area with signs, everything for a dollar. Dollar haircuts, dollar perms. In desperation, the barber across the road hired an expert an advertising expert, and he came up with this idea, a huge sign above, the, above their shop, and it simply said this, we fix dollar haircuts. And you know, we fix what Satan has offered to people on the cheap. But I tell you something, it costs. It costs Jesus the cross. It costs Jesus the pain and the agony of the cross. And if we're going to build a church, friends, that really makes a difference. There's going to be some cost involved. It was costly in sacrificial giving. You know, in, in, in Sunderland, where the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostal revival, first started in the Church of England in Sunderland, there's a, there's a kind of a plaque, a big stone in the side of the church, and it simply said this, this is where the fire fell and burns up the debt. And you know, when, when the power of God comes upon people, do you know, it doesn't just release our lips in praise, it releases our pockets in money. And, and, and suddenly, the, the idea of giving is no longer so difficult. They were also a compassionate people. It says they divided them among them as every one had need. 
In other words, they were so close that they knew where the problems were. They knew where the needs were. And there was a love amongst them. And they were reaching out to each other and helping one another, making sure needs were met, making sure everybody was being cared for. There's a true story told of a man who decided to visit the churches of two well-known television ministers he liked. After hearing the first, he just asked if he could say hello to him. But the minister's handlers said no and suggested he kind of ring and arrange an appointment. Disappointed, he went to hear the other minister and was invited to the church uh, to lunch afterwards with the minister. In fact, the minister came to him and said, would you like to come to lunch with me after the service? Neither of those ministers knew that that man had in his pocket a cheque for $4 million. Guess who got it? The guy that showed some compassion and some love. The one he could get close to. And friends, it's so important that as God's people, we are a church with compassion, in provision, understanding, and community. But also I want you to notice that this was a constant community. They stuck with it. Do you know, it says that they were with one accord, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. In other words, they kept at it. And by the way, it wasn't long before they suffered a lot of persecution. They went through a hard time. And you know, friends, it's, it's so easy, so easy, when things get tough in church life, and they do sometimes. I have a friend who was a pastor, and he said, you know, church life, the tide goes out and it comes in. Sometimes it has to go out because that's when you see all the rubbish on the beach, you can clear it away. But then it comes in again. And, and sometimes it's like that in church life. And there are what I call high tide seekers. There are people that go from church to church when the tide's in, but they never stick with it when the tide goes out. And friends, if we are going to grow, we must learn to be persistent. We must learn to be constant. We must, we must be at it there every week. You know, so, again, forgive me, but... You know, when I, when I was a Christian, I, I was in church most nights of the week. And when I go around to places where I see revival, I find it happening there as well. And some of us think we, you know, we're doing God a favor, just turning up once a week. Somebody, one church had this on their notice board. When I pass a church, I like to stop and visit. So that when I'm carried in, the Lord won't say, who is it? And, you know, it's so important that we are constant in what we do, whether it be in the celebration, whether it be in the small groups. And last of all, they were a contented community. It says they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, when you've got a church like this, even, even in the difficult times, there is a contentment that seems to go right through the place. It was a joyful contentment. They ate their food with gladness. It was a praising contentment. They were praising God. And by the way, friends, can I just say to you nice English, quiet people, you don't praise God quietly. Worship, yes. You can worship God in your heart, but you can't praise God in your heart. That's audible. 
That's words spoken. That's words sung. And they were praising God. Why? Because there was a contentment. He glorified God having favour with the people. And it was fruitful. And I notice this. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. That's the kind of fruit to have, isn't it? When God adds. We're doing the right things. We're doing the things that God has called us to do. We're building the right kind of community. And God looks down and says, hey, that's a good church. I think I'll add a few to them. They need it. And he, and he adds, he adds, because unity has built community. I often say how I went to a church in Bogota that had grown from 20,000 to 100,000 in 12 months. And it was quite an experience. The first day we were there, we went to, in the morning, to a, a gathering of young couples, three or 400 young couples, new converts, they were being taught. We went in the afternoon to the youth meeting, five, 7,000 young people packing into a hall. We went on Sunday to the celebrations. We only went to one, but they did start at 4 o'clock in the morning, the 6 o'clock one, the 8 o'clock one, the 10 o'clock one, the 12 o'clock one. And they were all packed out. On Monday, we were asked to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning because we had to be at church. We wondered why, but we had an, about a three-quarter of an hour drive, so we we didn't have breakfast, and we felt a bit hungry, but we went to the church. We got there at 6 o'clock. The place was, had about two or 3,000 people to the 6 o'clock prayer meeting. By the way, there had been a 5 o'clock one, and there was going to be a 7 o'clock one, an 8 o'clock one, and I'm told there were just as many people in all of them. And, and then we had breakfast in their big restaurant they had. Then we went up to the main hall, and we saw all the small, small group leaders, before they went to work, queuing up for the names of the new converts, from the, from the meetings on the Sunday. And by the way, we saw about two or 300 people at every meeting, except Christ as their saviour. Then we went to the leaders. Then we had a look round the school. And, and it seemed to us that some of the people, they're living in the place, and there weren't just a few of them, there were a lot of them. And, and even those that were going to work were popping in, in there and popping in on the way home. And, and the whole place was a buzz. There was, you know, you felt, hey, this is not just church. This is community. This is where people are involved. Why? Because there have been an incredible move of the Holy Spirit. I remember standing with the other leaders in, the, in this meeting with 7,000 young people as they were worshipping God. And I, thought, I don't think it was one of us that had dry eyes as we looked and watched these young people praising God and worshipping. We stood as we watched three or 400 young people come out and accept Christ. And then they didn't lay hands upon people, a ministry team. They called them all out. I think it was about... 80, 90 young people come out for prayer. And the leader just prayed over them that God would do something. And we saw demons come out of people. We saw people being healed in that front row, just spontaneously by the Holy Spirit. God was moving. And you know, friends, when we get it right, I don't know whether you realise what God can do. When, 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 you know, we, we, we sometimes we think, oh, but that's, that's South America, that's Bogota. But friends, I believe God wants to do it in our country. I think it's about time we had churches of 20, 30, 40, 50,000. We've got, we've got a few in London, about 10,000, but they're nearly all African churches. And we need to have churches that touch the whole community, that affect the whole community, in city after city after city after city. It will come, friends, when we unite. It will come when we are one to the place where God can pour out his Holy Spirit upon us and take us from unity 
to community.